Hi, my name is John Kim. I'm a therapist who went through his own rebirth many years ago, and I've been documenting my journey ever since, sharing my life lessons and revelations. I believe in casual over clinical, with you instead of at you. I come unrehearsed on purpose because self-help doesn't have to be so complicated. All right, so I wanted to start with your story. Um, yeah. How did uh, how did humble get created? Yeah, um, I I I think I, I was in love with school. Like I love being in school. I think yeah. every single school year, a new desk, new friend, new classroom, mm. new adventure. I love that kind of reset. Yeah, um, and this is where in the world? This is in Toronto. Toronto. I was born and raised in Toronto, Canada. Okay. Yeah, and. Um, then as an adult, um, after going to university and kind of realizing that adult life was going to become extremely uh, repetitious, um, I went back to school and I and I got into teaching. So I was an elementary school teacher. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. So I taught the third grade, the fourth grade, um, the fifth grade for a year as well. Mm. So I taught for about six years. Nice. How was that? It was it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, when you're with the kids, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's a whole other job before and after. But when you're in the room with the kids, it's a lot of fun. Right. And, and you learn a lot about yourself because you start to realize human development. Because you, you right. we forget that we were at one point almost empty vessels. Sure. And the amount of socializing that we've received. Right. And then to be in a classroom where you're you're completely in charge of the culture of this classroom, and you start to see the kids. Uh, you start to see you rub off on the kids right. in terms of who you are, uh, and I taught in the same neighborhood I went to school at. I didn't, I didn't go, I didn't teach at the school I went to, but mm. I taught in the same neighborhood. So the school was predominantly children of immigrants, mm. first time coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in all in all the years I taught, I never had a white student. Wow. Yeah, Toronto's super multicultural. I grew up the opposite, where everyone was white. I was always yeah. the, the one Asian kid. Let me ask you this: um, from te- how 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 many years you teach? I taught six years. So six years of teaching. Yeah. I did five years of uh, of uh, uh, nonprofit residential with with uh, teenagers. I but love it. What what um, what were three of your takeaways from working with third and fourth graders? Um, it's always about what how did they you, teach you. What they taught me is they're capable of way more than you think. Yeah, it really is about how you package the information, mm. um, and realizing that how you. When you're active, when you're when you're when you're uh, aware, how you speak to them with intention, um, what kindness, with encouragement, mm-hmm. um, it's probably the most effective way to communicate with anybody. Mm. Um, and you realize that oh, I'm I can speak to everybody like they're an eight year old. Um, it's not condescending. You're actually speaking to their inner child. Right. Um, right. So that really helped me. Um, become a much more effective communicator, Ooh, a much more effective writer. Yeah, because I yeah. realized that I could take any idea. So whether I liked a really deep academic idea, all I had to do then was package it in a way that made it more understanding for everybody else. Um, and the last one is probably accommodations, realizing mm. that everybody requires um, a level of accommodation depending where they're at. So, you know, when you teach, let's say, the fourth grade, you have kids who are academically in the sixth grade and you have right. kids who are academically in the first grade. Right. And they're all in the same room. And in Toronto, they didn't hold kids back. So they were going to push kids through regardless because for socialization purposes. But academically, you had to design programs to work for them. Right. And one of the philosophies was you take a C-plus student, design an entire program to get them from C-plus to B, mm-hmm. and then use that program for everybody. Mm. And then you start to realize that, you know, Focusing on one will allow you to amplify that success. Um, and that's really helped me realize that, you know, that's how the best way to kind of work with individuals and, yeah. and tell, especially when telling my story and working with people and also working with myself. You know, it's, uh, you know, you're self-employed. You realize you have the worst boss you've ever had. Yeah. And you're self-employed. You realize you have the worst employee you've ever had. Yeah. And you'll say things and do things that you would never have done in any other work setting. Sure. And um, it doesn't lead to any results it doesn't you know being hard on yourself doesn't make you work harder right um you know what's interesting is what you said the uh the second takeaway the um your intention and how you um treat kids and and now with adults um addressing that inner child without being condescending so what does that look like so do you um when you're talking whether it's intimate relationships or friendships how do you tap into the the third fourth grader of that person without 
sending, uh, sounding condescending. You know well, saying? yeah. Like, so I think the big thing was even when I was a teacher, I didn't yeah. sound condescending to those kids. Uh, right, so, which is important. Which you, don't, is, you don't talk to kids like kids. That's like you, the yeah, worst. Yeah, you yeah. don't talk to kids like kids. Yeah, and yeah. I think, and if I ever spoke to my students like their kids, like, yeah. good morning, yeah, boys yeah. and girls, yeah, yeah. instantly they would be like, what's wrong? Right, right. Who is this guy? Right. Right. So there w- I never did any of that. I spoke to them like I spoke to everybody yeah. else. Um, but I think the big thing what you realize with kids is you give kids the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, you try to figure out their context. So, you know, you have a young child and mm-hmm. they're having a tantrum. You try to figure out you try to figure out the context. Why are they having this this emotional outburst? And I don't know what age that just stops. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, you're not allowed to. Yeah. You know, and but an adult is having their emotional outburst for the exact same reasons. There's a context. There's, right. there's, there, you know, they, they've hit, they've hit a, a breaking point. They have certain tools. They don't know how to deal with it. So I think, and as I said, this is intentional. And when I'm in a good space, when I'm aware, and I think as a teacher, you know, that's what I was doing for the day. Yeah. And that was my job. Obviously, when you're in a romantic relationship or when you're with your friendships, like that's only one element of your life. Mm-hmm. You have a long day at work. You come back. You don't want to deal with somebody's shit. Yeah. But that context is still there when you take time and reflect. So I think for me always realizing that it's not black and white. Mm-hmm. There's always a lot of gray in between and how do we uh, discover that? And I think most often it comes from asking questions, yeah. being curious over judgmental. Yeah. And uh, at least adults should be able to articulate that much more than kids. Because yeah. kids will fill in that gap. Oh, he's hungry. Oh, he didn't get his nap today. Right. That's the same reason adults are jerks. They're hungry, they didn't get yeah, their yeah. nap today. Yeah. Um, so teaching for uh, six years and then what from there? So once I began teaching, it was the first time, like that was adult life. The first time I didn't have homework at the end of the day. First <laughs> time I could figure out what to do with my right. time and I had disposable income. And uh, I got into, you know, going into the city, you know, looking for ways to meet girls and do all that fun stuff. Yeah. And I got into spoken word poetry. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I started yeah. doing like coffee shop, poetry slams mm-hmm. and all of that. And I grew up on hip hop. So I was always rapping and, and doing stuff like that. And mm-hmm. to me, spoken word poetry was just rap without the music. Right. So I got into that circuit and it was a small but active community sure. in Toronto. And um, I used to do that weekly. And it was just a great icebreaker to meet people. It was a community in itself. Started meeting fellow artists. Started, you know, kind of getting really into that world. Um, and that's that was where, that's where the poet comes. That's right? where the poet comes. Yeah. yeah. And um, so that kind of became my what do I do after work mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took a life of its own. It started growing. Um, you know, this was in the late 2000s. Yeah. And this is when YouTube became a thing. And yeah. Back then, if you posted something on YouTube, people actually saw it. And right, right. It was no whole, algorithms. No yeah. algorithm. Yeah. No, yeah, well, the algorithm was it exists. Yeah. Here, let everyone watch it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I, th- I, I started becoming a little bit of a, you know, building a name locally mm-hmm. at that point. Um, and then kind of scratching my artistic itch, knowing it was always there since I was a child. I was always writing. And um, trying to honor that um, passively, being like, okay, this is what I'll do for fun. This is my after school, after work hobby. And it continued to grow. And uh, I got more into music, started making music. And, mm-hmm. and, and the students knew that, you know, Mr. Singh makes songs and he swears on yeah. YouTube. Yeah. It you made know. you cooler. It made, it made me eyes. cooler. Yeah. And it was also like, even the parents were aware of it. Mm-hmm. And I think it was um, because I looked like the community. I mm-hmm. think that was that was a big thing where they they got it and, and and everything was great, and you know take a couple sick days if I got a gig. I think the first gig I ever got, where like they bought me a plane ticket, was like Fresno, California. Wow, yeah, yeah. yeah, like yeah. Some, I performed at some like conference, some youth conference over there, and I was yeah. like cool. And I took a sick day at work and flew to Fresno and had a whole experience. Um, and then I started spending my summers with artists. Mm-hmm. I, I would meet these artists, but they were living the artist life. Like they were struggling right. artists. They you were, were a teacher slash. Yeah, poet, I was. Yeah. I was. I was an artist with a salary. Yeah, and yeah. even in the summer, I had a salary. Even if I was like, not being like San Francisco, staying with an artist who was renting out a room, and I was sleeping in the couch in his room. And, you know, he would like literally be rapping outside the BART stations or, or yeah. trying to get onto shows and piecing that money together to pay his rent. Right. So I was kind of faking it where I was living the life with him, but I had direct deposit <laughs> right, coming right. in. So did, that, yeah. did that make you feel fraudulent or did you like that? You had safety, you had, you know, quote unquote, a real job and you got to hit flow states in poetry and, and you know, work on your craft. I think at that point, what it felt like, it felt like I was living in the zoo. 
and yeah. I got to sneak out into the jungle every now and then. Oh, but I had yes. to go back to the zoo. I had right. to go back. Right. Um, and at that point, because I didn't know what I didn't know, the zoo just felt like a, like a trap. I felt like, oh, I am in these cages and these cages are keeping me from enjoying the freedoms. Right. And I'm meeting all these artists who have way less than me, but they feel like they're completely free. They're mm-hmm. free to go where they want, live how they want, do what they want. Um, and that summer, that fi- it, was a, it was a final summer that I had done that when I had gone back to the classroom. It just wasn't, it wasn't hitting. It wasn't, my energy wasn't there. My enthusiasm mm-hmm. wasn't there. Yeah. Um, you wanted to get out of the zoo. I wanted so badly yeah. to get out of the zoo. And... Um, you fell in love with the jungle. <laughs> well, you fall in love with the you fall in love with the small doses of the jungle. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? like right, you, right. You, you don't realize that these cages are keeping you keeping you in, but these cages are also keeping others out. Yeah, and you know your your zookeeper is giving you a meal every two weeks, right? And everything right. is taken care of, right? And you're looking at a romanticized version because you spent two months with a guy who even himself. You know, even as he's a struggling artist, there's still a family that could take care of him if worse things come to, you know, worst case scenario. But, um, yeah, I was working in music and then somebody presented me with an opportunity to do some songwriting. And it was supposed to be a really lucrative deal, which is more than I made as a teacher. Right. And without any due diligence, without any responsibility, I just I left the job and, and mm. dove head first into it. And then um, that was my first real taste of the jungle. Oh, yeah, and it wasn't. It wasn't what you expected. It was not at all because it was. Yeah. It was completely fraudulent. Oh, it it ended up making me unemployed and broke. You know, it's interesting, and I think many people listening can relate to. I mean, what you're talking about is just life, right? I have my version of this too, but um, it was almost like that shiny thing pulled you out because if you had known it was fraudulent, you would have never left, exactly. right? So that got you out of the, the yeah, zoo and then you realize, oh, this is not real, but now you're out. And so now you, it's sink or swim for you. It's sink or swim. And, and you know, it's been, it's been over a decade since, you know, and that was a very tough time. Yeah. Um, and at that point, I was no longer a guy doing art as a hobby. I was trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I thought the way you made art was you make some dope art and then like Puff Daddy discovers you, yeah. throws a bag of money on your head. And right, it's right. just happily yeah. ever after. Yeah. Then, the, then the Ferraris. And then the, the Ferraris, <laughs> all that good stuff, right? right? And, and and this is even when social media was still in its, its adolescence, so it wasn't even something that was guiding my decisions. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, it became quick within probably a year of waiting for these deals to come through and them not coming through. You start to realize like, oh, I've never actually existed in a competitive environment before. Mm-hmm. Because I was a teacher, my my colleagues weren't competing with right. me. Everybody's paid on their seniority. Like yeah. it doesn't matter what I do. I don't get paid on my performance. I get paid right. on how long I'm there. And um, everyone's priorities was the kids. So everyone, you know, if I showed up late after lunch, another teacher would have got my class sorted mm-hmm. and settled because their safety is paramount. Sure. Versus making me look bad. Right. Um, and then you realize in the jungle, you know, somebody recognizes your talent very early. They want to see how they can benefit off of right. that. So I got that crash course very quickly. Yeah. That, um, yes, I was not free in the jungle, but now I had no skills. And I was, you know, I pretty much had a bubble burst mm-hmm. and I was choking on the fresh air. Um, and one of the things that came from that was I, I thought, you know, making music and creating art was going to be my salvation out. But I wasn't able to do that by myself. I didn't know how to record. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to um, make music or produce. Um, I didn't know how to shoot videos. I had, I had, I was working with people, but they were all part time too. Right. Like the guy recording me, he was a sound engineer for like commercials, and the guy shooting my music videos was a wedding photographer. Mm-hmm. So they all had real lives, mm-hmm. and you know, and now I was trying to do this every day, and they weren't in a position to do it. Um, and then a friend said, you know, what can you do all by yourself? You know, if you, do, if you don't know how to record, you don't know right. how to do all of this, what can you do by yourself? And at that point, I said, I can write. Right, yeah. That's all I can do is write. Yeah. So they said, write. Write every day. So is that where Humboldt entered? So there was the poet, there was spoken word, there was music, there was the hip-hop. And then um, you realize, okay, there's something I need to do that I can do with myself and not depend on other people. And that was writing, right? Yeah. Um, and then is that kind of where... Humble the Poet was born? Well, Humble the Poet was born from, from the spoken one. word oh, okay. and from even from the hip hop. So like I have, you know, you can look up, I have music on Spotify now under Humble the Poet. Yeah. Um, what what that did was, it that was the birth, that moment was the birth of the author. And mm. what, what I didn't realize at that time was, that, you know, I was talking about important things even in my music, but black and white text is just way more accessible. Yeah. Going back to accessibility sure. and people, how people can consume information. 
So all I did was commit to writing every day mm-hmm. on Facebook. Um, why did you start writing self-betterment? Is that just what you naturally gravitated toward? Um, I think I gravitate towards learning new things. Yeah. And I think where I was at that time mm-hmm. was I was in a dark place. Right. Um, and and I've learned just recently from the therapist that I see that if somebody couldn't afford a therapist, their best option is to write every day. And journal. Think, yeah. Journal sure. Every day. It's a form of processing. Yeah. Right. And that's what I was doing. I wasn't doing it thinking I was processing. Right. I was I was saying I need to if you don't create, you don't exist. Yeah. And, and and this friend challenged me to do something that was in my control, which mm-hmm. was write. So I'm like, I'm just going to write every day on Facebook. And what I had been doing was collecting photos of just random things for inspiration. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I, have, I have a collection now on Instagram too, just random things that inspire me. I used to just go into that folder, pick a picture. And, and write. Write about it. Oh, okay. And the pictures were random. Like, there's a picture of a, a, like a, a real photograph of a monkey holding a baby tiger feeding it a baby right. bottle. Right. And then I would just start writing about service. And then, and, and I'm writing to myself and I'm just mm-hmm. changing the pronouns. So instead of saying me, I would say we. Instead of saying yeah. I, I would say we. You know, yeah. we. And um, once I started doing that daily, and, and again, this is like early, this might be 2011, 2012, yeah. you know, pre, pre-algorithms on Facebook too. Yeah. Blogs were exploding at that time. Blogs were yeah. exploding. And you know, I remember the first question when I when I committed to writing every day was, "What if you run out of things to write?" Mm-hmm. I remember I found a guy who was daily blogging, and in his FAQ, that was a question: "What happens if you run out of things to write?" And his answer was, uh, "Write every day and see if you run out of things to write." Mm-hmm. Like that's it. He goes, yeah. "I don't." Because th- if you actually write every day, you'll never run out of things to write. And um, I didn't. I wrote every day, and then the my audience started to grow much quicker. Um, Where were you at the most active? Facebook. At this point, there only was Facebook. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're talking 2011. Yeah. Because so like, yeah. um, I was, that's about when I uh, started writing after my broken heart and I called myself the angry therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was active on Tumblr. That's, so that's I, I yeah, it's funny. So my stuff went on Tumblr as well. Um, yeah. And, and my roommate at the time, um, he had a very active Tumblr, which was just naked women. <laughs> so that's how I always view Tumblr as much more f- photography. Yeah. Um, I think I put myself on Tumblr. It's interesting. I just, uh, I just reconnected with the, I, I, I just connected with the dude who bought Tumblr, mm. and they're making a resurgence. Maybe really, is yeah. it coming back? Yeah, yeah. Um, or it is back. Um, they own WordPress. Well, well we, we, we can talk about that. He actually, yeah. I, I met him um, a few months back, and he oh, said, "Listen, if you if you get active on there, we'll, we'll make it we'll make it worth your while." Oh, so, nice. Something, yeah, something to to, to think about. But um. But yeah, we were we were parallel in that. We yeah. we um yeah, I didn't have anything. I didn't um the only thing I had was time. Yep. And I had my thoughts. Mm-hmm. I was a previous uh, I was a screenwriter and so I connected to myself again, but it came in the format of a blog mm-hmm. and I was starting to become a therapist and so I started talking about um which we'll get into now well is is love mm-hmm. and relationships and all that. Um so we were both in 2010 um punching keys, you yeah. know. Punching yeah. keys to get ourselves out of uh the dark places. Yeah, you in Canada, me in LA. Yeah, 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 exactly. Nice. Yeah. Um, so you've written many books. This is your latest book. It's yeah. called How to Be Loved. And um, so the background is someone that I um, that I know in the sense that uh, we've we've crossfitted together. Oh wow! And yeah. then he was doing his art, and then now this is like on walls everywhere. Yes, right. Rojas, How did you connect yeah. with that? Uh, I connected with him through Lewis. It was when I first. Oh, Lewis. Oh, because he has it on his wall. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. when we, well, so pretty much what happens, uh, you know, when I, I moved out here uh, a year and a half ago, and um, you know, I, I and I've been coming out here regularly since like 2015. Yeah. Uh, so Lewis was a friend, and we went on a hike, and you know, I kind of complained that I, I'm only meeting entertainers, I'm not meeting artists, and then he mm. goes here because he I know some artists. You need to right. My buddy Ru- right. Ruben. That's Ruben, an artist, yeah. yeah. Rojas. And, yeah, Ruben Rojas. You need to meet him. Yeah. And then we, you know, we sat there and connected. Um, and again, that was more just for me to have an artist friend. And then I mentioned to him that I'm writing a book about love. And mm. then obviously, you know, you that's his his, his entire universe yeah. is, is love. And um, it wasn't, it was, you know, it was it was later that my, my, my agent said, he goes, he goes, you should ask him to do your book cover. Nice. And um, I mean, shout outs to Hay House because they made it such an easy process where they um, reached out to him. They spoke about the business side. Mm-hmm. That was all sorted. Then me and him just spoke creativity. Oh, nice. So it was a, a much better situation. Because yeah. when we had met up 
originally all we talked about was this kind of idea about creating art and how often there's art that feeds your soul and there's art that feeds your bills Mm -hmm. and they're generally two different things Mm -hmm. and how when artists work with artists it's a little bit it's a little bit more of a fun experience yeah it's collaborative it's also um it we feed into each other you know um you could put business aside and just you know lean into your, your right brain um this is very la in that uh, we don't really know each other, didn't grow up together. Yeah. But then it's like the, the guy that did the cover of your book, yeah. I also have met. And uh, and there's a, a you know, because in L.A. it's like um, there's always a couple degrees of separation and you know someone who knows yeah. someone. Oh, yeah, and I know that person. Um, and that's the thing with him, too. Like, he's in great shape. He's in ridiculous Yeah, he was, shape. I mean, he would roll up in his Escalade and we would go work out. And I was obsessed with, with CrossFit at the time. Yeah. And, yeah, he was shredded and he yeah. was a, a beast, as we called it back in the day. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I remember him. Um, but, uh, and, and he's been very successful. I love that he uh, poured his uh, gifts into um, painting and street art and the yeah. wall. And now it's everywhere. So. He's got And he's got, like, statues outside a few uh, NFL stadiums now. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. He's, wow. So he's got these, I think it's a 50-foot statue outside of a hospital in North Carolina. Oh, that's amazing. So, yeah, he's just, you know, he's literally spreading love. Yeah, exactly. He's literally spreading yeah. love, and, and yeah. I think it's just really dope that he's done it. And yeah. yeah and he, he recently just designed a, a bottle for, of tequila. Jeez, yeah, that's some great. Really cool stuff. I love there. it. Um, you are also spreading love. This book has 61, uh, I would say, concepts. I would say, you know, I do a lot of things kind of in a shot glass, and I kind of feel like you do too in that potent, you know, a couple pages, no fluff, yeah. um, poetic, right? And so I took um, a bunch, and I thought we could get into it. My audience, you know, it's uh, – uh, relationships, love, a, yeah. a lot of that stuff that they're thirsty for. And so I have a couple of my favorite and I wanted to kind of um, do a deeper dive on it, yeah. if you will. One of yours is how to make anyone fall in love with you, right? Yeah. So what what caused you to create that and what what uh, what do you mean by that? Meaning how do you make anyone fall in love with you? <laughs> <laughs> Which is the, the, the what, $10,000 question, a million dollar question. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, if, if you read two more lines into that, you yeah. realize it's, it's, it's a joke title. Right, right, Yeah, right, it's right. completely a joke title. Yeah. And, and, and even even the, the way I titled the book, How to Be Loved, it's, it's realizing, it, it was inspired by a, a friend, Matthew Hussey, uh, what he was telling me. He goes, you know, if I had, if I made a video about how to love yourself, mm-hmm. I would title it, Why He Won't Text Back. Right, right. Because yeah. because the title is what grabs you. The title is what yeah. grabs you, and 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 you're meeting people where they're at. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And you know the message is for people to to strengthen their relationship with themselves. Right. Um. Which in in fact will probably you know uh draw more people to you, but people want to hear how do I make it? Yeah. Like, when you read me. um how to have a better relationship with yourself, you're like pass. Yeah. Pass. <laughs> Why won't he text me back? Oh yeah, yeah. I want to know. I want right. to know or how to get all the chicks or yeah. how to get yeah. all the guys. Yeah. How to make, yeah. Yeah. So I think from that, that's kind of you know it, it was yeah. There's a lot of comedy in this book, but it was it was that idea. But I think definitely the the big idea behind that is you know your relationship with yourself determines mm-hmm. your relationship with everybody else sure. and you know that determines your boundaries that determines what you find attractive mm-hmm. that determines um you know how much you prioritize being likable over even realizing love with somebody else uh it also determines your definitions of love and what it means and the roles that you want to play with that so how you make anyone fall in love with you uh is basically you do that by you falling in love with you, right? Um, starting with you, focusing on you, working on you is, is what actually attracts people to you instead of um, making someone, yeah. <laughs> making someone, trying to convince someone to sell someone on you, um, which of course is not sustainable and won't last. But uh, um, yeah, and I agree with you. Your relationship with yourself as you build that, um, people fall in love with that. Yeah, because it's like we're outsourcing the antidote to our loneliness. Mm-hmm. And it's not, a, you know, somebody else is not the antidote to right. loneliness. Right. Um, loneliness is the punishment for being alone. Solitude is the reward for being alone. Mm. You know, so loneliness is not being alone. You can feel lonely in a room full of people. Well, you know, what's worse than feeling lonely when you're single is feeling alone in relationships. Yep. You know? I mean, we all feel, you know, it's, it's normal to uh, experience loneliness. It's a feeling, but I'm saying like a consistent, if you're constantly feeling alone in your relationship, to me, that's worse than feeling alone 
when you're single. Yeah, and and, and and that feeling of loneliness is internal. So you can't have an external solution to that. It has to get addressed on the internal sure. side. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think, you know, I love the Peter Crone idea of saying, you don't say I love you, you say you show me where love is. Mm. So when we recognize ourselves as a source of love and we view love as the verb more than the noun mm-hmm. and we share love with mm-hmm. people, you know, that in itself is going to create a pathway uh, between us and other people for love to flow. Yeah. So by default, and I think what I'm realizing, especially through a lot of these conversations that I'm having now with people is everybody has quality relationships and love in their life. Mm-hmm. They're generally not romantic. And they generally think the romantic relationships have to be different in some capacity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, love for a sibling, love for a parent, love for a friend doesn't require as much expectations, doesn't require as much. Uh, yeah. Why is that? Why do we put so much weight on romantic love and constrictions? And because, you know, some people are great friends, but then when it comes to their relationships, they're a fucking mess. Yeah, you know, yeah. um, why is that? Because it, it is it is very different in that yeah. friendships tend to be less pressured right and also friendships aren't about the promise and i think this is one of the reasons when you love someone romantically you know you want the promise when you're friends with someone it's organic and you don't care about how long you're going to be friends with someone you care about what's in common you care about the here and now you care about the energy and the the the, the banter um and and you care about all that all that too in in romantic relationships but i think a lot of times when you focus on promise it strips away um friendship and, and a lot of foundational stuff. You know? I, I think it's that 1000% and going back to teaching is also this idea that a lot of the things that we have accomplished or we have now on our tool belt um, were meticulously force fed to us. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. your ability to read this book came from a 10 year program designed by educators yeah. that started with, all right, let's teach them the letters. Let's teach them the sound of the letters. Right. Let's put two letters, put three letters together. We'll do this slowly. So maybe by the time they're 13, they can read Harry Potter, right? Yeah. Now, if you want to learn a new skill, let's say it's the piano or something like that, and you have to regulate yourself now mm-hmm. on a 10-year journey, it's going to be way more difficult. Yeah. So a lot of the friendships we have happened when we were kids, um, happened when we, it was proximity, you're sitting beside me. You're now my best friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you. And then I move and forget about you and go hang out with somebody else. And this is a lot easier because I do think the pressures of adults becoming friends with each other are still pretty high yeah, as well. Yeah, of course, of course. And I think what's happening is love actually isn't the priority. And that's why it's so difficult mm. because love is to accept, you know. So like you think about someone you genuinely love right now, you know all their imperfections. Um, you could write a book about their imperfections. None of that disqualifies them from mm-hmm. your love mm-hmm. um if anything it shows that they're vulnerable and that makes you care about them more because yeah. vulnerability is such an important ingredient to connection what i think is happening especially when people think about love is they're really talking about this process of courting and dating and i can say well th- you know being perfect and beautiful doesn't matter in love but appearing perfect and beautiful may be important to get a second date <laughs> right you know a second date isn't love yeah. it's a second date yeah um who you know and and i and i've written in here i don't care who pays i don't care who texts mm-hmm. i don't care that's not what love is that mm-hmm. that's this courting process that's this journey yeah. and there are people who you know they have you know uh their high school sweetheart and they never had to play those games and you know they organically grew and had have a strong foundation of multiple first experiences together they mm-hmm. grew up together and that's what they know and you know, they end up lasting, you know, in a world. Very, very few, by the way. High yeah. school sweethearts still together. But uh, I mean, very few couples are together at this point. We're at like yeah, 56% it, divorce rate, yeah, right? Yeah. So I think there's, there's this recognition. I think there's that recognition of realizing that, look, a lot of the things that you're doing is you're chasing things that you think are love. Admiration, right. attention, right. affection, uh, ad, you know, adoration, worship, power, clout, money, all success. All this stuff is not yeah. love. And if, you know, being liked, that's not love. All of these things aren't there. And we feel like we have to be or do something to earn those, mm. which you probably do. And by default, because you have to earn them, right. that doesn't make it love. Yeah. Love isn't something you have to earn or find. You know, love is what's already there. Love just requires you to clear out all the mess that's in the way, all the clutter. Clean out the clutter and the love can flow. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think um, when it comes to when you say earned, you know, I... I think trust needs to be earned. I think relationships are built. Um, but in the, in the way that you're describing love, it's more of, um, it's it's almost more of like a living, breathing thing. 
it's uh, um, something greater. Um, it doesn't hang on um, some kind of exchange. Almost. Well, it, it well, and we know it doesn't. And and I, and again, I don't want it to become mega, you know, cosmic and super yeah, yeah. highly spiritual. Yeah. I'm gonna say like love is the default. Like love is actually love is love love is what exists when we 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 live in a world beyond duality. Mm-hmm. You know, when we stop mm-hmm. thinking things are black and white. You know, that's that's the only place that love can exist. And love isn't transactional if you're a parent. You know, you have a child. Your child, for the first couple of years, will do nothing back yeah. Yeah. other than exist and, yeah. and, and, and defecate all over yeah. you. Right? So, <laughs> right. It doesn't requ- so it doesn't require history. It doesn't require establishing trust. Yeah. I think pathways uh, of love between two adults, yeah, trust is, is a pro- part of that process. Um, as I said, it doesn't. Re- I don't think it requires all of these things. I think the courting process and meeting new people, especially as adults, with all of our insecurities, all of our coping mechanisms, um, all of our fears around getting hurt has created this culture of, mm. you know, let's put on a mask, let's put our best foot forward, and then hopefully slowly reveal who we truly are. And I think there's a more healthy approach to this, which is stop thinking vulnerability is zero or 100. Mm. I can be vulnerable with you right now, and it doesn't have to be TMI. It doesn't have to scare you away. Um, and I learned that through therapy. Yeah. Um, have you know, have two stories of vulnerability in your pocket that you could tell a stranger for the first time, and it would not scare them away. You know, and I have stories about losing my first dog and it breaking my heart, mm-hmm. and you know, getting getting a new puppy, and you know, originally saying no, and then after a few shots of tequila, being like, no, I need this puppy, right. and you know, she flew with me here from Toronto, mm-hmm. and now she lives a beautiful L.A. pretty girl <laughs> life. And at the same time, the first time I took her to a vet after COVID, for the first time I was allowed in a vet's office, the first thing I saw was the metal table, um, mm. which reminded me of the first time I put my last dog to sleep. And I had an emotional reaction to that. Right. And I wasn't expecting it. And I, it helped me realize I have emotional triggers and traumas that I never processed. Didn't even know existed. Yeah, it was stored. Yeah, they were stored. It's and, you know, yeah. so now, you know, having this, having this new puppy who's young, energetic, and healthy, knowing that if everything plays out properly, I'm still going to outlive her. You know, is requiring me to reframe my relationship with death, reframe my relationship with my attachment to her and mm-hmm. how I view it. That's a vulnerable story. Yeah. It's not a vulnerable story that's going to scare you away. It's not a vulnerable story that makes me think that you're going to use that again. Like the quality of person you'd have to be to use that against me to hurt me. Yeah. Wouldn't make me want to be around you anyways. Right. I think people have to realize that that's more important than rhyming off your resume to impress somebody. Um, let them know who you are. Sure. Yeah, and absolutely. that just requires more self-reflection and building that vulnerability with ourselves. Uh, no, I, I I agree with you. I mean, this whole thing for me started by um, showing who I was on Tumblr. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't know anyone would read it, and then mm-hmm. you know that, that's kind of been, and especially as a therapist, where you're not really supposed to talk about you, and so I secretly did um, pull the curtain back, mm-hmm. and you know, then I realized. And I think it's a, it's happening now where people are more interested in who you are than than what you do or the letters after your name. You know, yeah, um, you say love is a path, not a destination. Yeah, explain. Um, I'm a big believer in the journey, not the des- not the destination, mm-hmm. and viewing love as a verb. You know, so mm-hmm. viewing love love isn't the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Mm-hmm. Love is the rainbow. It's the journey. It's who you're becoming on the journey. It's the work that you're doing. Um, and I think so often people are working towards love when love is the work. Why are relationships so hard? <clears throat> I think everyone agrees relationships are hard. If you've had yeah. one, you know. Mm. Um, why do you think they're so hard? I think a lot of them are based off of a template that was created by people thousands of years ago mm. and has been updated. Yeah. Um, Grand- I, grandparents, great-grandparents. It's passed down from, you mean, generation. Passed grandpa. down from generation, but also passed down from a life that doesn't exist anymore. Mm. I think a lot of... I think for 10,000 years, 20,000 years, there were roles being mm-hmm. played by everybody for small communities. And we were in much smaller, much smaller communities, um, villages. You know, my parents grew up in those villages. So, yeah. some, you know, for me, it's a generation away. For some people, it's, it's 200 years away. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I think the, it became a well-oiled machine and the roles that everybody played and the expectations and how it worked. Um, and then nobody decided to update these policies when we started living in these larger metropolitan areas. Nobody updated the policy when we created Instagram and girls on Instagram with filters. And nobody created the policy when everybody is a dopamine addict, you know, 
completely afraid of FOMO, you know, right. things need to get updated. And I think what's happening is people, things aren't updated. And I think we also don't realize that when people refer to society, you know, society pressures this, society pressures that. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to go deeper and try to figure out what is society, who is society. Um, and I think a simple answer is, at least in this part of the world, society's main goal is to get you to buy stuff. Mm, to keep right. to keep the engine going, right. which means the stories they tell you is yeah. to encourage you to buy stuff, um, which means the dreams they sell you will always encourage you to buy stuff. And I think that's a really important thing to understand because they're going to make you more in love with the wedding than they are mm-hmm. the marriage. Right. So what would be the update when it comes to love or, you know, at least for you, what is the new um, definition of love and relationships? Um that is that is on to you today that isn't you know from our parents or grandparents on that what does that look like i think self-awareness probably you know if i had the magic power to shove a religion down everyone's throat it would be the religion of self-awareness what's your definition of self-awareness um being aware of your patterns Mm -hmm. and being aware of the influences of your patterns Mm -hmm. um it's not nature versus nurture to me it's nature and nurture working together um and doing the work to discover how your nature and how your nurture have worked together to make you the person that you are Um, recognizing as many as many of your emotional triggers as possible and being able to articulate them to somebody else Um, taking ownership over them realizing it's nobody else's job to tiptoe around Mm -hmm. you and your individual triggers ownership is huge ownership is very huge understanding that um, power only exists when we take responsibility. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. realizing that, you know, a fast food version of self-connection is self-pity. It's a really quick mm-hmm. way to feel like you're connecting to yourself. You're like, no one knows what I'm going through mm-hmm. except for me, but there's no power in self-pity. Right. So victim in, mode. Victim mode. Right, which is power less, not power filled. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not saying taking responsibility means taking blame. Taking responsibility is asking yourself, where is my power? And the analogy I like to use is, if I'm driving my car and I did nothing wrong and somebody rear ends me, mm-hmm. it's still my responsibility now to do the insurance, to go to the auto body yeah. shop, to get everything done. Right. It wasn't my fault, but it's still my responsibility. And I think for a lot of us, we have to recognize that how often um, there are people selling us the idea that, no, we're just victims. It's not our fault. Someone else should fix this for us. Mm-hmm. Um and the people that are doing that are doing it to consolidate power and influence themselves. So how does uh, the, so what you're what we're talking about now? How does that um, show up in relationships? Meaning, so like you're just saying with the car, if I got you know blindsided, um, yes, it wasn't my fault, but it's my responsibility to go get my car fixed and you know go to work tomorrow or or whatever it is. In relationships, um, how does that show up? How 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 does in relationships do you take the power back? Uh, partly ownership, but what does that look like? So it, 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 the ownership is becoming what you seek, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, many of us, I think, I think what's happening, especially with this generation, is starting to recognize the gaps in our upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, realize we were all raised by imperfect human beings, but that's not where it stops. So I'm not a victim of my parents right. because they messed up in certain elements of raising me. I'm an adult now. I can fill in those gaps. Yeah. Um, and I'm not a and I'm not a victim of those circumstances anymore because I have the ability to fill in those gaps. Um, I have the ability to be my own best friend, you know, whatever I'm lacking or whatever I didn't get from the friends around me. And again, you don't get to feel sorry for yourself in that capacity. You don't get to say, well, I'm here for my friends and my friends are never here for me. You know, it's more about acknowledging on that context that, OK, I can be here for myself. Mm-hmm. I can fill in the gaps in my upbringing. My parents didn't. I have a friend who just recently took himself to the dollar store and gave his inner child a $20 shopping <laughs> Nice. As an exercise? It was like, exercise. go wild with the 20? Yeah. He goes, yeah. go wild. Yeah. I, I, I don't even think he said a limit. Yeah. I think he literally just said, go wild. And, yeah. and they ended up at $20 of Cheetos and chocolate bars. Mm-hmm. And he's a healthy dude. Yeah. He doesn't normally eat like that. Yeah. But he, he explained that that just started this journey of this inner dialogue where he's walking out of the store eating this candy. Yeah. And still having more conversation with his inner child and helping him realize how many survival and coping mechanisms that he still carries um, because he grew up in the streets Mm -hmm. that no longer apply. He doesn't live in a dangerous neighborhood anymore. He doesn't have to walk with his head on the swivel. He doesn't have to walk super fast. He doesn't have to size up everybody that's walking, that's approaching him. And that conversation began with this Cheetos chocolate bar. Mm -hmm. And so he's filled that in because he didn't have that growing up. His mother had addiction issues and they were living on the streets. So filling in that gaps, I think also, again, challenging our influences so again our nurture 
um, comes from media. Healthy relationships are peaceful. Healthy relationships will not make exciting television. Yeah. You know, you're Ross and Rachel. You're, you're Bobby and Whitney. You're, you're yeah. cat and mouse relationships. <laughs> right. um, Pamela Anderson, Tommy Lee. Yeah. The night is coming back. All of them, yeah. all of them are here for entertainment. They're not models of relationships. So we have to stop chasing sparks. We have mm. to stop chasing better halves. Yeah. You have to stop chasing someone who completes us. You are a complete individual. You know, if anything, you want to chase something, chase a second pillar. Yeah. You're a pillar, they're a pillar, and now you're both two pillars that can hold up something greater than the sum of you. Yeah. Which is a family, which is a business, which is a, a community, which is a village. View yourself as that. Learn the difference between interdependent and codependent. You know, codep- the only codependent relationship that's probably acceptable is you and your dog. Dog? Um, yeah. Oh. Cause, yeah, because they're they are completely like dependent I, on you. Yeah, I can't live without you. You are my everything, right. and I will make you feel like you matter, and and that's it. Which is cool and cute. You never well, have for, to set for them many. Up that's the you and your child, the codependent. You know? And that's extremely unhealthy. Yeah, you know, and yeah. it's it's been really interesting talking to women who say, you know, they help me define what a mama's boy is. And a mama's boy is somebody who is is a man who received unconditional love from a woman, and now doesn't know how to live up to standards. Sure. Because, because because the enmeshment with mom or um, mom and and child uh, they were they were so uh, codependent yeah. that they, they he didn't uh, have a sense of his own self right yeah. and so as an adult um, you, and there was no constructive feedback yeah there was nothing to help him improve and now all of a sudden he's meeting women who are like you have to earn my attention mm. my love my affection or right whatever. and again that's not love but it's still earning it's earning earning that second date or whatever it means yeah. and it catches them off guard because they're not used to that so i think you know this is where a lot of the stuff starts to, to come into play we're starting to recognize all of these things um are within our power we're not victims of it even if we didn't come out of the box with all these tools yeah we're in a position now where we can intentionally choose these things and um i think it was joe Dispenza said you know articulate who your dream partner is and become them mm. you know it's, it become them instead of find them yeah 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 that's interesting and i think it's also another concept i've recently learned um and i've learned this through therapy is this kind of concept of like you know especially everyone has everyone requires special accommodations um and if you're not used to that special accommodation you require you call it a red flag Mm. and i think that's been really interesting because you start to and it goes back to we choose what's familiar over yeah. what's healthy yeah so you know if i snore and i meet a girl who you know grew up with a dad who snores and snoring is a comfort sound to her then we're great right <laughs> versus the girl who didn't grow up with that who's yeah. just like i i'm gonna murder you i can't sleep in the bed with you you're too loud and you start to realize like everybody has their own unique individual experiences and i think the more awareness that we have for that we can figure that out and also realizing that a lot of our personality, a lot of our definitions of love um, and our models for love came in our upbringing. And yeah, what was around us, what we saw, what we saw. What yeah. we, and, and we were experiencing them with so many limited filters on because we were de- our brains were developing. Yeah. You know, if you're eight years old and, you know, dad comes home from work and you drew him a picture, and you show him. But, you know, he kind of brushes you off. You know, that you internalize that. As adults, we may have context that he might be having a horrible day at work. Yeah. Or he might have came back from the bar or he made it. We don't even know what nothing to do with you. But the eight year old is going to internalize that. Yeah. And so many of us now find ourselves attracted to people who make us have to earn it. We have to earn their love. Mm-hmm. And somebody who makes it too easy kind of feels gross. Oh, that person texted me back in a timely fashion. Something must be wrong with them. Yeah. Because why would they make it so easy for someone like me? And I think we have to abandon this this languaging around worthiness and enoughness for love. I don't think you can measure a human being in terms of them being enough or worthy. Mm. I don't even want to tell somebody you're worthy of love. Love doesn't requ- love doesn't have a qualification, a qualifying factor. Yeah. It exists and you know, either your doors are closed to it or your or your doors are open to it and that's internal work to 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 make that happen. And yeah. those doors are your insecurities, those doors are your limiting beliefs. Those doors are the traditional beliefs that we have. And just being a little bit more critical. So why do I why do I believe this? Oh, I watched a gang of Disney movies or I watched a gang of porn or yeah. I watched a rom com and I watched all this stuff play out. But this isn't real life. Real life is a whole different thing. Yeah. And um those conversations are I think, you know, they'll come through journaling. I think they'll come through um 
other methods of being more uh, intimate and vulnerable with yourself. I think prayer is a great example, um, irrespective of your beliefs. Mm-hmm. Prayer is a great place for you to articulate what you're authentically grateful for and what you authentically want. And no one's there to check out and judge your answers. Yeah. Um, I have a story in here about a girl who, you know, cancels a date on me. And I ask her if she ever gets lonely. And she says, yeah. And I'm thinking this will be a way to get her back. And I go, so what are you going to do when you're lonely? She goes, I dance. Mm-hmm. She was like, close, I close my blinds and I dance. Yeah. And she goes, I become closer with my body and more aware of my body. <laughs> and I build a, a deeper relationship with myself. Sure. You know, it's intimacy and vulnerability. That can happen with ourselves. And yeah. Activities like self-havening, hugging yourself, um, you know, being more vulnerable with yourself and accepting what's in front of you, you know, embracing your imperfections. Mm. Because if somebody was actually perfect, they wouldn't have any vulnerabilities. If they had no vulnerabilities, you would have nothing to connect with them on. Right. So let's abandon this idea of imperfect. Let's abandon the idea of perfect. Mm-hmm. Let's just focus on progress. Yeah. We'll all make progress and make progress until we die. But we don't need to be or do or accomplish something for love to be in our life. Yeah, I love it. Well, um, I you know I also love that uh, that you're a man speaking about love. Um, I think there's a huge shift right now just with men in general. I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening in the world and, you know, rocks being turned over, things being questioned, new definitions just across the board, not just with love and relationships. Um, But I appreciate you creating this conversation um, about love relationships. And, 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 uh, you know, as a minority male, I can Mm -hmm. relate to you, but also um, being a wordsmith and um, putting it on paper and, um, injecting it with art, right? So you're also kind of redefining uh, what self-betterment can look like, Yes, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, so thank you for all that. No, of course. I mean, as I said, and everything I do comes from me sucking at it, you know? Like I, was, <laughs> yeah. I was engaged and in, in, in rela- and I ended the relationship mm. and I had you asked me the day I did it why I couldn't answer. Yeah. Um, I, just, I just felt the anxiety and then, you know, it took years for me to realize I wasn't breaking up with a person. I was breaking up with a version of myself. Mm-hmm. in that relationship mm-hmm. um but that was what sparked this book because i was like why do i suck at love why does everybody else seem so happy why right. is everybody else working and i suck yeah knowing that as an adult i'm at i have, I have a peaceful relationship with my parents mm-hmm. i have a peaceful relationship with my siblings mm-hmm. i have a peaceful relationship with friends. my extended family yeah. and my friends i yeah. have friends i've known since elementary school that i've never had a conflict mm-hmm. with so I knew that I, I was extremely privileged in the relationships I had, but I still felt void. I felt a void. Mm. And even when I ended that relationship, it was her that called my friends to tell to tell them two weeks later and saying, I bet he never told you. And they're like, he didn't. Uh, and then them calling me and be like, you've been sitting, and this is during the pandemic, like you've been sitting alone for two weeks, not telling anybody that mm. you ended a five-year relationship. And that was me realizing, like, oh, all my life to survive the way I thought I built this fortress to protect myself. Sure. And now I realize it was a prison mm-hmm. and I wouldn't even tell my own friends that I ended a relationship because I was afraid of their judgment. I was afraid of them saying, you idiot. That's the best you were ever going to get right. or, or what have you. And that wasn't what they said when it happened. And that in itself, and even, even last week, somebody, another really good friend of mine brought that back up. They said you you had broken up with that person for three months and I didn't know. And they go and and they they internalize it like I thought you I thought we were friends, and I looked at it as I just didn't want to burden anyone with my stuff. Yeah, because that's what we're taught to do is be small, don't exist. Right. It's the conscientiousness, especially children of immigrants, yeah. don't make your existence matter. Right. Everyone's got way too much happening. And then through this journey of this book, realizing that, no, that's not what it is. Don't deny people an opportunity to be there for you. Um, yes, we all have full lives and full plates, but the, the most important thing we have in our existence is our relationships. Yeah. And I want to be there for my sisters if she's having a bad day. I want to be there for people that I care about deeply. Um, and that may require me to cancel a meeting or cancel something because I need to make space for that. So I think for me, creating this book was that journey of figuring out, like, wait a minute. I'm not, I'm, I know I'm not lacking love, mm-hmm. but why am I not feeling it? And I realized, okay, it's the breeze is there. My sails are closed. What's the work to open that sail? Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, I have to, you know, I have to start being okay with my imperfections and myself. I have to understand even simple things like people don't see when they look at me, they don't see what I see when I look at me. Right, right. You know, and so that, writing this book was actually um, therapeutic. 
Yeah, right? I'm, I, I, I do, I do all my work selfishly. Every yeah. book I've ever written is yeah. for you first. Kind of it's thing. for me first, yeah. and it's a. Uh, I'm not a love expert. I'm not. A, I am not a. You know, yeah. I'm not a clinical uh, psychologist or anything like that. I am the kid at the front of the class mm-hmm. who takes really good notes yeah. and shares them. That's me, and I'm still learning, mm-hmm. and um, I'm still making mistakes. And as I said, I think the big promise in this book isn't you're going to find a soulmate. I think the big promise in this book is uh, you'll learn not to carry the way. Mm, I like that. Not about finding the soulmate, which you know all the Disney movies hang on, yeah. right? The prince or whatever coming princess or prince, prince, um, but learning to carry the weight. Yeah. yeah, what a great message. Thank you. I I, I think we should. It's a, it's a great period to end on. Um, making it not about the promise, but learning to carry the. When you say carry the weight, I think about the responsibility we have uh, to sit at the table of love, right? Yeah. The yeah. Um, the ante, yeah. which is uh, um, learning to carry the weight. And, well, and yeah, and I think the other idea I had was that it was like love isn't the glue that keeps people together. Love is the fuel that makes them work. Mm. You have to work. Like, you right. know, if you're in a relationship, any, rela- you know, any relationship, even your relationship with yourself, um, the most useful things that you do to take care of yourself, whether it's showering, brushing your teeth, they're all the, the least romantic, um, the yeah. most monotonous, yeah. and the most repetitive, yeah. but they're the most efficient. Sure. You know, you can't romanticize all of that. It's the same thing in a relationship. Mm. Um, the unsexy stuff you're saying. The unsexy yeah. stuff. And it's not, I neglected you for six months, so now let me take you to Paris. You know, it's not mm-hmm. these grand gestures. It's the day-to-day stuff. Yeah. It's the little things to make someone feel seen. Yeah, I agree. Um, and that's energy and that's effort. And that may require you to sacrifice energy and effort in some other department uh, of your life to make sure that you have time for that stuff. And it yeah. requires you to be really intentional. Go pick this up. It's called How to Be Loved. And uh, it's wide everywhere. Everywhere. Amazon. Right, cool. It's, um, you know, audiobook. The audible version is, is great. Doing extremely well as well. And Barnes & Noble. Anywhere you get books, anywhere around the world. Indigo in Canada, Waterstones in the UK. Yeah. yeah. Humble the poet. Well, thanks for hanging out. Thank and you so much uh, for yeah, thanks me, for man. the conversation. Appreciate you. Yeah. Where can we where can we find you? Oh, uh, at Humble the Poet everywhere and humblethepoet.com. And if you can't find the book where you look for books, go to humblethepoet.com slash love. All right, thank you for listening. Be well. Nice.